Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. We are a weekly Columbus-centric podcast focused on the civics, lifestyle, entertainment, and people of our city. I am your host, Tim Fulton. This week, we have a conversation with just two of the many people that put on the Independence Day Festival, which is coming up on September 17th and 18th in Franklinton. We speak with this year's festival captain, Patrick Losey, and the festival's artistic director, Adam Burlett. Independence Day, to be clear, is not Independence NCE, it is Independence NTS apostrophe day. Uh, Independence Day is on its surface a typical festival. They have beer, they have bands, they have vendors. Uh, But it's also not what you would expect. From a Tron bike ride to a pinata Thunderdome, the festival embraces whatever people want to bring to it, whatever the independent people and organizations of Columbus want to bring to it. As Patrick puts it in the interview, it's the output of every single person's input. We delve deep into how a group of people that are dedicated to making Columbus awesome founded the festival, We talk about the festival's evolution, the growing pains and pleasures of starting something like this in Columbus. Uh, We talk about what's new this year, the logistics of putting something like this together, and in the end, we talk about the payoff for it. In short, why they do this. You can get more information on Independence Day and the other things that we discuss in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Best Bites Burgers, coming up on October 13th. The event is your opportunity to taste the best burgers Columbus has to offer. Tickets for the event include burger samples from over a dozen Columbus restaurants. You can purchase tickets at Best Bites, that's B-E-S-T-B-I-T dot E-S. Enjoy the interview. Sitting down with Patrick Losey, this year's captain for Independence Day, and Adam Burlett, a founder, the board chair, and the artistic director of Independence Day. How are you, gentlemen? Good, Tim. First of all, Independence Day is coming up September 17th and 18th in Franklinton, right outside of what most people are familiar with as 400 West Rich and sort of the streets and alleys surrounding it. Adam, what year are we in? How long have we been doing this? This is the ninth year. The ninth year. It's been that long. Yes. Okay. It has been that long. (laughs) All right. Originally held between uh, North High Street and North 3rd Street, downtown on Gay. Um, Talk about, Adam, first of all, how the festival got started. I think depending on who you ask, you're going to get a very different answer. it kind of is a bunch of things. And I think the one thing that everybody can agree on is that Mike Brown from who at the time worked for, uh, the mayor's office now works with experience Columbus and several other people, including Chuck Hootman, who, uh, at the time was with tip top. Um, and several other people started talking about having a block party downtown. Um, that conversation kind of led to Mike approaching the couch fire collective, which was running Agora, uh, in Grandview as like a team to come and help put it on. And so just for p- 
people that don't have the background, uh, Couchfire was an artist collective. Correct. Agora was a semi-annual event. Correct. That occurred at Junction View Studios. At Junction View Studios, which was the building, right? which was the building. <laughs> right. That building is no longer there. Right. It's where currently uh, Grandview Yard is. Correct. Just to give all the background, you then transitioned into a artist studio and gallery space called Taco Cat. Correct. That you've now vacated and you're quickly moving to open block fort correct uh here where we're recording today correct um so those groups got together those individuals got together and then there were other um groups that got brought in andrew dodson who was working with central city recording um aaron moore and uh her team with the columbus music co-op um it was just sort of like a hey who's doing cool things in town let's throw a party and the first year was really that it was like me with my credit card and you know some fifteen hundred dollars and uh the the couch fire collective team running volunteers and and making sure that drinks got poured and stuff like that dodson and his team helped with the music and the uh, columbus music co-op helped us find bands and the first one went off just like you would expect it was a you know a street a block party street party and uh so even though that was called Independence Day and that's where it started and how we got our footing. And also for those that aren't familiar, it's Independence Day, N-T-S apostrophe, not N-C-E. Correct. Not not the independence of our nation, uh, but a collection of independent people. Correct. And I think that that was like the original premise of the thing was like, how can we get all these cool individual things that are happening around town all to happen on the same day, on the same weekend, share crowds, get people together. So that... That basic premise of what Independence Day is, is still very, very much a part of the festival. It's just we've become a much stronger magnet for all the independent things that are happening. And now those uh, those small chunks are starting to make big chunks and the city is becoming more self-aware of all the small chunks that are happening. And as it grows, it, it changes. So by Really, by year two, Couch Fire Collective was sort of waning. I, I was doing a lot of the work pretty much by myself um, the second year. And I ended up partnering with Wolf Star. Um, he ran a big portion of it. Alexis Perone and Aaron Corrigan came in and uh, started running volunteer activities. Um, by then, our, our community had started becoming more aware of things like food trucks and uh, you know the different music groups that were happening in town. So a lot of those groups started participating. And our, our flyer started looking more like a instead of a list of bands that are gonna play, but more of a collection of like interesting things that happen in town. Then really by like year three and four is I think when we went through like sort of a weird growing pains where Couch Fire Collective was almost completely out of it. There was a team running Independence Day that was more who runs it now, or at least the leadership team where uh, Alexis and Aaron and myself and Andrew Dodson and Wolf sort of made up this core body. Jacob Wooten was involved. and as, as people were sort of brought into that, that team, um, there was sort of a growing pains, like do we want to be a, an actual organization or is this just a block party we throw once a year? And probably I think it was at the fourth year we had our first uh, retreat and we went out and the leadership organizing team got a cabin in the middle of January and went out to the woods and started brainstorming like how does this work? How do, you know, what do we want to be? How do we want to grow? 
we started making decisions like uh, rotating leadership every year, bringing in a new captain, fostering young talent, trying to get um, larger uh, companies that wanted to support a way to do that without um, seeming like a normal sponsorship like you would have for another festival in town. Um, how do we get creative individuals to get involved without um, sort of stealing their talent? You know, how do we find way- mechanisms to pay people? How do we find ways to make money for vendors? How do we find ways to involve new community aspects? And what can we do with the, the money raised? And for the first several years, we actually donated money to several nonprofits around town. As the festival grew even more, though, it became more and more apparent that becoming a 501c3 was going to have to be our our direction. Um, we already had a board, you know, those those leaders and the past captains, and uh, we had a, a lawyer and an accountant, Alex Hasty and Aaron Pickock, respectively. Um, and then we kind of started formalizing things and started moving towards that 501c3 um, process. Some of that had to do with getting actual bank accounts and stop using personal accounts and starting to track where money was going and how we were spending. And making... So it was pretty fast and loose at the beginning, even yeah. for the first couple of years. Oh, very much so. It was you know out of pocket. It was uh, just making stuff happen kind of thing. And then after a while, it, you know, we were like, hey, we probably should start saving receipts and, you know, and... Really, years, I would say, four, five, six, um, were about legitimizing the fest, about making sure that we were doing, you know, we were dotting I's and crossing T's. And still on Gay Street at that time. Correct. And the awesome thing that happened with the festival that was also awful, or what we thought was going to be awful at the time, was that year six, we that neighborhood had changed so much. In six years of being down there and bringing attention to the neighborhood and working with the downtown Sid and Cleve Ricksucker and Casey Campbell, or Casey Brandcamp now, mm-hmm. um, you know, we were working with all of them and all of a sudden you had hotels doing well and restaurants moving in and all the, you know, the neighborhood was full. And so those groups also were saying, hey, you're having a festival outside my full hotel at night. You know, this is going to cause a problem for my business. And what we didn't want to do was do damage to the businesses that we helped, you know, sort of bring attention to. Um, and at the same time, didn't you also want just to get a little bit of credit for you're the reason why your ho- we are the reason why your hotel is full right now. Yeah. And you know, I'd like to think mm-hmm. that the festival takes full credit for something like that, but it's not, it, it, there's the growth of the city. And it, as much as we are sort of a collection of people who are very dedicated to making Columbus awesome, I think that we're humble enough to know that like, we're just one one wheel in the machine, you know, one, one piece of the, how Columbus has grown. Um, but we made a, had a very long and extended argument on, should we move? Should we not move? Where would we go? We had several different options of places that we thought about moving each with its own benefit and and detractors. Well, and Um, so just to get a little bit into the, the weeds on this, in order to shut down a street, you have to have you know a certain percentage of the property owners sign off right. on it. It was last year that you were there that you were, there were actually property owners that said no. Right. And yes. you had to, and you guys still move forward. You still did it on Gay Street that year, but had to make all these accommodations. Yes. Some of them reasonable, some of them unreasonable. Correct. You know, making the footprint smaller uh, in order to changing where our routes were, making sure the valet was available, making sure that the event spaces that are there had access and that we were quiet at a certain time in certain areas, making sure that the neighbors that had to get to their garage could drive right in through the middle of the festival. And we had police escorts to get them there, making sure that the fire department was happy, making sure that, uh, you know, all of the 
areas where dumpsters were weren't disrupted and it it became a big deal you know it was like a lot of work we had 198 signatures we used to have to get um, so that was a major factor when we were deciding where to go and ultimately we ended up in Franklinton and that choice to go to Franklinton at the time people were like are you kidding like Riverside Bradley had just come down uh, people were, you know, we had people saying directly, we are afraid of this neighborhood. It's not, you know, this is not a nice environment. How are you going from downtown with shiny buildings and nice backdrops of the state house to, you know, bombed out warehouses? And, and I don't think any of us ever saw it that way. I think we were seeing what was happening already with 400 West Rich. The idea foundry was moving over there. Um, some of the, the places like uh, the two deuces had turned into uh, uh, the rehab tavern. And we knew that there were people that we were friends with that were working over there. Urban Scrawl had taken place, which is a fantastic event that's in its 10th year now. So, you know, we, we kind of felt like, if anything, we were riding into a, a healthy environment where artistic endeavors and creativity were already kind of taking root. And if we could help be a catalyst to that and help it grow, um, you know, work off of what they had already pioneered to do, that it would be a good scenario. We also acknowledged that to do that, we were going to have to change the organization of the festival and create more artwork, more backdrops. We're going to have to bring more energy to the organization just because we didn't have that natural backdrop of the environment. Well, that natural footprint also, like you're, you're filling a much larger space now. Right. So in year seven, we um, expanded our organizing team. Now we, you know, not only had a captain, but we had lieutenants. Lieutenants served over volunteers and food and art and all the different aspects of the festival. And our team grew from being like a core of nine people to a core of about 20 people um, between year seven and year eight. That changed the way we did things. We had more people um, in terms of being able to more bandwidth in order to watch what was happening, but we also had communication issues and how how do you how do you keep everybody on the same path? Um, we had board members and lieutenants uh, maybe on different pages in terms of uh, you know who who's in, who's in charge of uh, keeping receipts or who's in charge of spending the money and. We had to realize like who hey, has access to the money, right. right? So the board, the board had to, you know, sort of by year eight, put sort of a clamp down on and say, hey, not everybody can just run around with the car, the card and go buy supplies that we need for stuff. And we probably don't need fifty extension cords. We probably only need twenty. And, right. Um, and so a lot of that had to do with process and order. And and that we went back to that retreat and every year um, that retreat ends up being sort of a reset button and we rethink what worked what didn't and um, who are the new leaders in town who stepped up at the festival the year before who who should take a larger role um, who didn't do what they were saying they would do and how do we how do we handle that kind of situation if somebody failed miserably like yes it'd be easy thing to say just to kick them aside or you could bring them back in and and teach them and I think the the board, the core board, understood that like in order for us to sustain the festival, that we were going to have to become teachers, and we were going to have to start like educating younger generations how something like this worked, and to eliminate um, expectation and entitlement. So, getting people to understand like, hey, this doesn't happen just by you know magic. Just by saying you want to do it, right. you actually have to do it. Right. And so we created sort of policies that the way the festival runs every year and the way that we talk about it is that 
the festival becomes whatever people want to bring to the festival that year. So if a fashion group comes and they say, I want to run a fashion show, a fashion show happens. And we find ways to enable them, to finance them, to make that sort of activity happen. And I think that that should actually be trumpeted a lot, like that probably by year three or four is when you guys sort of said, yeah, we have beer and we have bands and we have some vendors and we have food. But if you want to do something else, you can do it. Show up to a planning meeting, present the idea, as long as it's done in a timely manner and you are willing to be held accountable for it happening, for making it happen. Yes, the accountability thing is a really big thing. And and uh, this happens every year. We have somebody say, oh, there's no fashion this year. And it's like, well, nobody that wanted to run fashion showed up, so we just didn't do fashion. But... Somebody else showed up and said, I want to run a Pinata Thunderdome or a Tron bike ride or whatever nonsense that somebody wants to come up with. And we want to support that. We, I, I would say that our group is very good at supporting nonsense and understanding why that nonsense is valuable to the community, why having a, uh, a group of vendor tents along with a Tron bike ride or uh, some acrobats or uh, giant board games, why, why does that make a better festival? And I think that mixing the weird things with the things that people expect make a unique experience, make a, a more enriched experience. And it is considering both the the audience member that's going to come, but also the person creating it. Do they have an outlet for the thing that they wanted to try that they didn't maybe have a normal vehicle to do that? And I think that as the festival grows, there will be more of that. Well, and sometimes those things don't go off. Like, True. I remember specifically the year, I think it was you, the go, like the go-kart yes. racing. <laughs> it was fine, but it didn't, it didn't happen the way that it was expected. There right. weren't, you know, because you sort of have to get people to make go-karts and then participate. Yes. Yeah. And, and when you make go-karts out of cardboard and then it rains and you have soggy go-karts. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing. We, we figure out um, what's the likelihood of something happening, what's the trust level that we have in somebody participating, um, and how much money should we put towards that based on those factors. Um, it helps us kind of figure out where, where are we comfortable. So if you take something like... And it's not a formal like grant submission process. N- no. Literally that you show up to a planning meeting early enough and say, I want to do this. Right. Yeah. And, and in some cases, it's uh, our leadership team finding things in the community that are happening or hearing concerns. Um, so say, as we were moving to Franklinton, there was a big concern that kind of popped up in the community about uh, hip hop being underrepresented at festivals around Columbus. And we have a friend, Josh Miller, who's been involved at the festival for the last three years. And we said uh, the first year in Franklinton, hey, we'll give you a little soapbox. Um, you can get some MCs together, some DJs together and just run a thing. And we don't have a lot of, I think we gave him like $150 or something. And, you know, and he put it on and did such a good job with it that the second time that he was involved, I think our whole group was like, he is trustworthy. He is, he executes well. I mean, he's running his own festival now with two by two fest, but that second year we had a whole hip hop stage, a whole hip hop area, break dancing, uh, graffiti writers on walls. Um, and then that expanded and went to the main stage. And one of our main acts last year was uh, Soul Position. And, you know, so we had this whole kind of blend of how hip hop could be involved in the festival. And then this year, we've taken that a step further and just completely integrated it into our entire stage system and said, like, 
hey, we know that there are responsible members of the hip hop community, and that was a total mistake by other festivals not to include um, people that just want to, you know, show off the things that they do. And I think that that's the kind of awareness that our group tries to have. Um, we run into bumps with it, just like anything else. You know, every year we have somebody that's like, hey, dancers need a 15 foot by 24 foot stage. And we're like, oh, well, we have a 12 by 18. Is that going to work? And you balance those things out and battle back and forth and try to figure out, is it worth the extra money? If we, uh, you know, have a feature that we put on and somebody says, oh, if you give me $30,000, I'll bring 100,000 people. And you know that's not going to happen. Um, you have to kind of guess, like, how many people are they going to be able to Has bring? Has that legitimately happened? Yes. Okay. <laughs> no no uh, finger pointing, but yes, that is... Uh, yearly. <laughs> yearly. So wait, what is, the, what is the operating budget of Independence Day? From year one, I like saying it this way, from year one was about $1,500 that we put the first year festival on. Okay. This year, it'll probably be somewhere close to $250,000. Wow. And when we say that, People are always like, oh, they're rich. They have tons of money. But it doesn't really work that way. It's cops. It's toilets. It's barricades. It's street permits. It's And all of those things, the bigger we get, the more expensive they get. So our police budget went from, like, hiring two cops the first year just to make sure that, you know, nothing happened at our little street party to, like, having a full police presence and, you know, lieutenants that are watching whole you know sections of police and having plainclothes cops and having security and making sure that everybody feels safe making sure that there's an EMS or a first aid uh, station making sure that we have uh, you know families taken care of making sure that we're appropriately representing our sponsors making sure that we're you know buying ads and doing all these sorts of things so when we say that the festival is a $250,000 festival nobody is making money we right. bands are being paid to perform uh, you know, we do things like buy pizza for artists that are making stuff. We buy supplies for the displays that they're making. Um, we'll put a little bit of money towards things like dance groups and theater companies and stuff like that. But like that have production needs. Yeah. Right. But even if you think about the fact that we have, what, 96 bands or something, you 96 bands at $50 a piece is a lot of money. Right. You know, you're already talking about huge amounts of money and nobody's being paid a lot of money. And so... I also like to look at other festivals and what their budgets are. I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly what ComFest is, but I'm sure it's well over a million dollars to run ComFest. I know that the uh, Greater Columbus Arts Festival is probably well over a million dollars to run that. And not to say that we're dissatisfied with where we're at financially, but we do a lot of stuff mm -hmm. with not much money comparatively. And we're trying to learn from those bigger organizations and learn from ComFest and learn from uh, the GCAC about how, how what works, what doesn't, what's good practice, when is spending money on police worth it, and when is should it be diverted to parking or, you know, um, we're growing too, so we have to, like, learn from people that have done this before. Let's talk a little bit about what the festival is going to be this year. Patrick, what can people, we haven't really even talked about like what, you know, what is the experience of the festival? It is how many stages this year? Uh, this year there will be, so we're, we're in one of those, as Adam said, sort of an odd growing phase. So we have four primary stages, a handful of secondary stages, some soapbox stages. Uh, so there's ultimately, I think, eight different areas where you will see live performances. Okay. And food. In terms of food, 
We will have many of your favorite food trucks represented. Um, we're working with Chaz Kaplan this year too. Again, uh, Chaz with his experience with the Food Truck Festival and a number of different other organizations was willing to step in and say, look, there are better ways to do some of these things. And again, it's been, this is our third year in Franklin 10. The first year it was, well, let's park some food trucks and run some really noisy generators and put them right in the middle of the street. Last year we relocated them. It was a better experience. This year we're changing things again. Uh, so 17 food trucks, six or seven mobile carts, everything from uh, ice cream to cupcakes and all the other things that you sort of want to see and expect to see. And it's just been some vendors that we've had great working relationships with that have almost grown with us from Gay Street and some that are brand new to Columbus. And there are artists selling wares. There are craftspeople selling wares. Correct. Yeah. The marketplace is one of those things that uh, Adam and I have actually focused really heavily on this year in another way of bringing in new people to the community. You'll certainly see some familiar faces. Craft and Outlaws is going to have a huge presence in Columbus Handmade. Um, organizations that have had a very long connection with the festival, but this year we're also partnering with the African Village Festival and with the City of Columbus for a little Columbus area, um, bringing in vendors that really touch all of these different areas that make our community cool. So we're making a micro community in Franklinton for those two days. Uh, last year we had, I think it was 146 total vendors in our marketplace. This year we'll probably eclipse that. That's awesome. The zones are new this year, right? They are. The zones are, as Adam had said, you know, really with those planning meetings, we went out to a cabin in the Hocking Hills and tried to understand how do we effectively organize so many people with so many skill sets that want to do so many different things. We had a larger physical footprint. We had more to do. We also had more challenges to solve, more pieces to put together. Uh, and the zones were sort of a natural response to that. And this is the first year. It is very much an experiment. And there have been upsides and there have been significant challenges that we recognize that when we are now throwing each of those zones is probably larger than the first couple years of the festival. So to be clear what we're talking about when we say zones, there is a sideshow zone, a kid zone, a gritty city zone, a retropolis, the play big zone, the fantasy and folklore zone, the Idea Foundry has its own zone. Yeah, it's, it's a way to, it started as how can we organize this just from a physical footprint? You get this area, I get this area, you take that area. So yeah, the zones were a response to, we have all of this area, we have all these things we want to do. Uh, how do we accomplish this? And how do we organize it? And how do we bring in more people? So again, you know, the first couple of years, because it is sort of helpful to look back as we look forward, we had probably an equal number of people that were working to produce the entire festival as we now have working on these zones. And that structure is a zone commander who is paired with an art lead. And in some cases, it's a handful of art leads. In some cases, the zone commander is the art lead. Um, there's really no particular focus. But what we've found is by really giving one person the authority to own that area, to use the, the Gritty City. We've already talked about Josh Miller a little bit in the 2x2 two two Fest. Gritty City is Josh... Uh, partnering with some really incredible artists that he's worked with during his time here in town to build a, an homage to 1970s New York City. So if you think about the Warriors and then pulled all of the Warriors out and just kept the background, okay, that is what Josh is producing. Um, so his focus and came... And so to be clear, at any point that you're in the festival, are you in one of those areas? And so everything sort of falls within a zone. You know, Think of it like Epcot Center. Okay. You walk from one area to the other... Each one has its own artistic look and feel, different bands that are playing on but the stage. But each has bands, each has food, each has, you know, they're not all going to have... It's like a bunch of mini festivals all happening within one festival. Gotcha. 
Yeah, most of our most of our majors. So when we're looking at Gritty City, Retropolis, which uh, last year was the Town Street stage, still the same location, different focus. Sideshow is right outside Strongwater's front door. So some of our major stages and some of our side stages still in roughly the same spot, but now with, uh, to Adam's point, it is kind of the Epcot approach because there's a visual aesthetic that maintains. So at any point as you're walking through the festival footprint going block to block, the environment changes around you. They're building into it. They're doing some really cool things to um, make it a more immersive experience. Probably a month ago, we started to think about, will it be incredibly jarring when you walk from KID, the uh, Moon Ranch area that's powered by uh, the Shazbots and a bunch of really great volunteers into Josh's Gritty City. So you go from bright and happy and cartoon rhinos on the moon to 1970s New York. So we're figuring out how can we even create those transitions so that it is clear that some of these things are intentional and very much uh, a part of the plan. But the music is something that we did. um, Derek DuPont led the music team this year. And one of the early challenges we gave Derek was not only we need you to schedule like 100 performances, no big deal. But also, we would like you to work with all of these very unique areas to try and find music that makes the most sense for those. Um, So again, to use Josh's zone with the Gritty City, he took a really good look at what makes sense. And so we did end up with a lot more hip hop on that stage. And that's, again, as we learn things, we've learned from year to year that it makes sense to, to circulate some of the performances, to make sure that we're not just putting one genre on one stage and leaving it. Um, but to be able to really put that across the entire festival. So no matter where you're at, you have part of that experience. But we did, when we had an opportunity, sort of place performances, bands, installations in areas that make sense. So it all builds towards one collective theme. I was going to say, I love the fact that I got on Instagram the other day and Damn the Witch Siren said, yay, we're at Independence Day on the fantasy and folklore stage. Duh. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There are some really natural fits that... Uh, some of them intentional, uh, many of them intentional, I think, again, to give credit to the music team, but some of them that just sort of fell together and we went, that, that feels right. So when we're looking at one of the things that I think when we talk about the festival always comes up in the early conversation, we always sort of forget to highlight is just the physical art that is a part of that experience. And in talking to people, that's probably what half the people show up for. There are a lot of festivals in Columbus that put music on a stage or that sell beer or that bring food trucks in. Uh, There are very few festivals that bring in 250 artists to do 250 or 300 projects over the course of two blocks. And that's one of the things that I think is really cool about this year was we gave even more license to do bigger things or to truly own an area. And so in some cases... Uh, with the Retropolis theme, which I feel like you particularly are, you are a target audience for this particular zone. Um, Flash Gordon during the day and sort of a Back to Future Tron audience at night. Mm. Interesting. You're speaking my language. They are even taking to the extent of not just some interactive things, like a giant light bright that Adam and I saw a portion of, and it is a giant light bright, but constructed in a very unique way. Um, some of the things that you'll be able to really get your hands on, but also the stage installation is amazing, and I can't wait for people to see it. And so this has been an opportunity for a lot of the artists that have always been a part of the festival to not only, hey, this is a cool thing, but to build it from a particular focus. And so there is a little bit more of a cohesive feel to how those zones work together. Because you guys have done a great job of the backdrops that yeah. have been constructed for the stages. but. What you're saying is not only is it a backdrop on a stage, but it's an environment. Correct. Yes. And and also it kind of extends into the people too. Like the kids that worked the first year in Franklinton, the kids that worked on the stage, Chris Blaine, Max McAvoy, Mandy Kasky, Jacob Tanner. Like these these were just kids that were getting out of school and looking for something fun to do and had no idea what it was, you know, basically slaved away 
like making these things, uh, you know, got excited when we gave them burritos and, and then every year we like give them a little bit more responsibility. And then all of a sudden they're in charge of a stage and now they're the leaders, you know, Max McAvoy is leading Retropolis. He is designing all the artwork and he's got a team working for him. So it's not just about teaching somebody, Hey, let's go make this fun thing for a stage. It's teaching them like how to lead an art team, how to apply that to practical, you know, organizational skills. Well, and, and it's empowering them. Correct. Right. And and so if part of the empowerment is using their creative desire, when we created the zones, we didn't say like, hey, these are the, this is what we want to do for the zones. We said, you guys come up with ideas and tell us what you want your zone to be. We did so, spend one night brainstorming themes, which fortunately none of them made it through. Yeah. Although I would like to go on the record as saying that the Wild West zone. Yeah. I, I, I am a little <laughs> sad that that never came to be. It, it has a soft spot in my heart only because it was the example that Adam started using <laughs> and then recognized... I've probably said it out loud too many times. People are just going to think this is a real thing. Yeah, right. So I'm going to say it out loud one more time, just in case people show up. And go, Where's the Wild West Zone? But it, but it was fun to watch all the artists like say, "Hey, I, we want to do this gritty city thing," and then Chris Blaine and uh, Josh Miller get together and they start brainstorming. And it's like you got one guy that's really into hip hop and one guy that's really into like metal and punk bands, and then they start blending that into this like whole environment and they're building storefronts and there's a subway car that's going to run down the road and they're doing graffiti and dunk competitions and break dancing and there's like fences and you know construction materials all around and it feels like a gritty city and then the music that's on the stage is hip-hop and metal and punk bands and it's fun to watch them have to fight over it and brainstorm and we give them like a ridiculously small budget we're like hey do all this stuff for a thousand dollars and they're like building this entire environment for nothing so people digging stuff out of trash to use and you know recycling as much as possible it's, it's really exciting to watch and there is a full explanation of all the zones on uh independence day website this is independent.com talk about sort of some of the logistical concerns when do you guys shut down the street and start setting up for independence day yeah that's always one of those interesting conversations to have because it does change every year um as you well, and, I, and I imagine like somebody comes to you and says i want to build a temporary building and you're like well that's a fantastic idea but we can't do that in 72 hours mm-hmm. or to use last year as an example last year our command center our central home base was a three-story tall constructed from scaffolding art installation so to put it up easier to take it down because the festival on Sunday closed around 8.30. We had to open the street back up by midnight going into Monday. So we had a bunch of artists very, very quickly and as safely as one can potentially quickly deconstruct a three-story scaffolding structure um, tearing that thing down because it was part of our responsibility to at least get those things off the side streets and into an open space. So every year it does change a little bit because you're right, it's, it's a driven by what are we trying to do and where are we trying to do it and how do we have to facilitate some of these things. We have been fortunate that there have been a number of really great partners in the neighborhood that are letting us use their spaces so that we can get in and start building things on Wednesday or Thursday, um, sort of doing temporary prep for those sorts of things. The Idea Foundry has always been terrific with letting us use their big lots. 400 West Rich. Yeah, 400 Strong West Water. Rich, Strong Water, we have being able to get into it. So there are, are terrific partners that we should recognize, and they make it so much easier because if we had to do all the setup from midnight until 8 a.m. on Saturday, uh, it would be a really interesting festival because none of the organizers would be there because everybody would be home and sleeping. So we get in on Friday, 
And, and Adam and I will be there Friday at 6 a.m., I'm sure. And it starts with, what can we do that's not on a primary street? And then we close the streets down in the afternoon. We start building, and that's when the stages get dropped and we carry in. Thankfully, we have a really great team on Saturday morning that helps with all of the load-in because we've talked about you know 20-plus food vendors and a whole bunch of beer vendors. I think we have 25 fish craft beer vendors from not only Columbus, but from Toledo and from Cleveland and from Cincinnati. And many of them are bringing teams in to help support some of these things. Uh, All of the marketplace vendors and getting 150 people into 10 or 12 different tents and all in the right place and powered and set up. So the logistical aspect of it changes just based on what we're trying to do. There is always that core. And I think as a a group of organizers between uh, Independence Day and then from some of our other involvements, we're getting a little better at it little more efficient. We learned some lessons like don't build a three-story scaffolding structure in the middle of a street. If everybody's going to be drunk. <laughs> that certainly also is a, it's, you know, you start learning what you do need to plan for and what it's not always, all right, so do we have the right tools? It's even at what time do we have to do this and how early or how late or so there's, or there's the so artists, many questions to answer. How the artists have learned, like the first year in Franklinton, we built everything out of like moving pallets. And we had like, I think it was 88 pallets that we built all these backdrops and they were heavy and everybody was tired and exhausted. And then the next year we rented scaffold and that made it easier, but everybody was still tired. So like this year they're building stuff out of foam and like literally just make it lighter. Can you make it easy to move? Now everybody thinks about what happens Sunday night when the festival's over. Right. It was always driven by how is this going to look? Now it's a combination of this will look great. How quickly can we carry set this, this up? How will it look and how can we get rid of yeah, it? Yeah, as you were talking about that, I was reminded of the first year we were in Strongwater trying to, all of the stage signs were just supported by pallets and they had been zip tied to telephone poles. So it worked for two days, but to get it down was one of those moments where we all just sort of like crossed our fingers and went, well, hopefully we get through this. Right. So yeah, that does change things. And it's, again, it's an experience for everybody to do. I'm starting to learn from uh, this particular position and seeing everybody with their hands and things that the festival is both the two days that people show up and have a great time, but it's the rest of the time leading into it. And it's the opportunities to learn some of those, in some cases, really useful lessons. In some cases, just if it's going to be heavy, maybe make it lighter. Um, So practical applications, but seeing that year over year, as Adam has sort of talked about with the artists that continue forward, they end up leading another group and being able to say, well, we did try that, or we gave this a shot, or you know, the, the focus is always year over year. How can we do this, but do it a little smarter, a little better? Um, some cases it's how can we do it without spending so much money on something that doesn't pay off or that didn't work the way we thought it did. But that's always really, really fun and seeing the conversations and seeing the, you know, from my seat right now, that is almost as equally impressive, if not more so. What happens in the third weekend in September is a great way to show off all of these amazing things and people working in our community, but the sort of invisible work that they do leading into it is so much more impressive. I 100% agree with that statement. There are many people that work basically full-time job, you know, like they're working a normal job and then they come and they work on Independence Day for months out of the year to make this happen. And I think that that's something, you you know, it's not easy for somebody that's a general festival goer. They may have a complaint about this or that. It's really hard to see how much work people are putting into this. It's a, it's a nonstop effort year round. The, the festival ends and two weeks later, we're having a debrief and talking about planning for the next year. You know, maybe some of us are crazy and we are, you know, doing this for free because we love to do it kind of thing. But when um, you love the payoff, 
Yeah, and the the payoff isn't monetary. Right. You know, it's it's hard to explain to a bank like why would you spend forty hours a week doing all this work and not get any money for it. But the payoff has more to do with like look at the changes in the city of Columbus since the festival started. And again, not that we're taking full credit for that, but if you have a moment, a weekend where people can with pride celebrate all the interesting things that are going on and all those interesting things can get to know each other and start collaborating and audiences that are maybe on the outer belt that come in for the weekend to see all this stuff start recognizing and then they want to come back down on a another weekend to come to a brewery or go see a performance or come to an art exhibition it changes the landscape of how people view columbus it changes the landscape of the type of city pride that we have it changes the the way the people that interact in the festival over the course of the year, it changes their lives. It helps them find jobs. It helps them gain prominence and get articles written about the artwork that they're making now or, you know, makes connections with partnerships that end up, you know, turning into new businesses. And for me, it's like uh, I'll gladly work 40 hours a week if I could make something cool happen rather than just sitting and you know playing video games and having status quo and and no knock against video games but i i would rather do something with the time that i'm given to make some sort of an impact and i think that that's the really great thing about the independence day team the core team the the lieutenants the board members the art directors the zone commanders those people are all doing it because they want to see something happen because they want to make something happen. You know, when you see somebody like Josh Miller again going and doing two by two fest, I'll give him all the support he could possibly ask for to whatever limit I have available to help him make that happen. Because again, it's maybe, maybe I'm not like the biggest hip hop fan, but I'd rather see people doing things than not doing things. And I I think that's kind of what this festival inspires. It's also really, as you were talking about that thinking through the groups that lead these things. I mean, there's certainly been sort of a core that has grown and evolved and you can see it just in KID, our kids festival within a festival, because at birthday eight for the festival, uh, we sort of looked around and went, some of us are getting a little older. Some Some of of us have kids, have some kids. What should we do about that? Uh, And independence day has always been a family friendly event but we never specifically went after how can we make this a great experience, whether you're two, 22 or us. And at this point, that's been a response. And the idea that last year we were able to do it for the first time. And, you know, actually Baker gets a lot of credit for being the one that said, Hmm, what would I bring my son to? Right. And effectively use that as an opportunity to introduce it. And this year it's huge and it's so much bigger Uh, and will continue to evolve, and that almost becomes its own wing of the festival. But even thinking uh, through the background of the different people that are leading some of these, we do have Josh that is a videographer and throws a great hip-hop festival. We've got Susie that next week is going to California to pitch a $30 million investment deal in a very important tech sector. Um, Varun and his background across arts and tattoo culture and all sorts of different things. You know, if you made your sort of lineup of, all right, everybody's standing against the wall and guess what these people do, it's also pretty impressive when you look and realize that nobody really has their hands in the same thing on a day-to-day basis, but somehow all of these people have come together, volunteered their time, and worked toward this big goal. And that is, it is really impressive when you start to think about it. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went down to Nelsonville and met with uh, Tim Peacock, who I did not know, but now really adore. Tim is the organizer of the Nelsonville Music Festival. So if there's ever a good example of somebody that does something right and puts together a great festival, he is certainly one of them. And we had a variation of that same conversation. And his takeaway was, how, how did you get so many people to commit and care so much? And I don't know that we have an answer for it, 
but it is always impressive to see how it goes. And every year there are people that really get excited and then sort of fade away for one reason or another. You know, we talked about in January what we say we're going to do and in September what actually happens, usually radically different. But the number of people that not only stay with it for the year, but year after year after year and, you know, five years from now and we look at what Independence Day 14 will be like, it's people that probably attend the festival this year that will be steering the ship at that point. How can people help? There are all sorts of opportunities. And thank you for asking that question, because after having talked about how it is a volunteer-driven festival, volunteering is really a great way to get involved, whether it's just in supporting a cool community festival, it's a good way to randomly meet your neighbors or make a new friend. Uh, We have a couple really funny Independence Day couple stories where they're like, yep, we volunteered for the beer tent and now we're married. So you have to be careful because sometimes you just want to pour beer and you end up in that situation. We take no responsibility for that. But this is independent.com. There is an option to volunteer and we've got volunteer shifts that are a couple hours to pour beer. We've got shifts that are in support of stages helping work with artists, run some of the interactive installations. Uh, Really, there is a focus for just about anyone. And it can be a very small time commitment, or if somebody's really excited, you know, it is an open festival, and every year it's the output of every single person's input, and we figure out what that looks like. So if it's come and pour beer this year, and then next year show up to one of those first planning meetings. Um, This year in March, we brought a couple hundred people together inside Strong Waters event space and talked about what we thought it was going to be. And I'm kind of amazed because our zone concept that we had just started to build out actually lived through it. And so I think that's a testament to, well, we kind of got that one right. Um, But every year there's always that open call and it's a great way to jump in and do something, whether it's on a very low level where you're just there for the weekend, or if you've got a really great big project, Adam has lots of uh, ideas as to how we can probably facilitate that. Yeah, and I think there's also an opportunity. The Independence Day group tends to be pretty open to discontent. So if somebody comes to the festival and they don't see themselves at it, or they wish this would have happened this way, or, you know, hey, you could do this so much better, or whatever, we're willing to listen to that. And when I say we're willing to listen to that, I don't mean like get on the internet and complain and then it's going to change. I mean, if somebody shows up to a meeting and says, hey, I don't see any of this going on. I'd like to change that or I'd like to help you change that. Our group is very willing to listen to those things and adapt and adjust. And and every year it does. It changes. And, it, and a lot of times some of the best positive changes that we have are when somebody from a certain community or a certain discipline or a whatever comes and says like, hey, I don't really see this happening there. Like we had last year, the um, video game community came in and they said, hey, we don't really see a representation of our video game community. And so they came in and they they designed a whole video game inside a shipping container. This year they're doing a whole a VR experience and video games inside Strongwater. And like that ends up being a really strong partnership because we like learn how they work and they learn how we work. And then we figure out like what will work together. And that happens all the time, like with, with people that want to stand up um, and, and actually make something happen. I think that's really important to, to foster people that aren't happy with what they see. Great. Anything else you guys wanted to touch on? I know it sounds like a, a sponsor plug or something like that, but it, every year all these people do all this work and the festival costs money. And yes, we make money from beer and sales and stuff like that, but we have, we're very fortunate in the city of Columbus to have sponsors that have started getting why doing this sort of thing is valuable to spend their money on, to support in the ways that they do. 
and you see, you know, great community companies that are growing with the festival, uh, you know, a, a Kaufman development or an orange barrel or a cover my meds, a Jenny's ice cream that like, as they grow, they're willing to support us a little bit more and they're willing to let us take the risks of making a pinata thunderdome or a, you know, a corrugated grand prix or all these silly things that we do because they understand the value of how that affects the community. And every year we grow in the number of sponsors and supporters. And those, those people are also unsung heroes. You know, they're, we, we put their logos on our shirts and we encourage people to pay attention to who these companies are, but they're the, they're not just the people that are giving us money, but they're the people attending the festival. You know, employees of these companies are, are the ones that we're supporting. They're the people that live in our neighborhoods. There are the people that we're creating it for. I, I think it's really important for us to recognize, like, you don't have to do the corporate sellout sort of thing to be able to work with a corporation or, or a company. It's nice to know that the companies in Columbus understand why it's beneficial to work with something like this. Great. Patrick, Adam, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Tim. Excellent. Thank you for listening to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. Again, you can get more information on Independence Day and the other things that we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Big thank you to Patrick and Adam for taking the time out of their crazy schedules getting ready for Independence Day. Please rate, subscribe, share this episode of the Confluence Cast with your friends, your family, your contacts, your enemies, your favorite festival goer. We can be reached by email at info at theconfluencecast.com. Our theme music was composed by Benji Robinson. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. Have a good week. <laughs>